started here. We have a couple things due today. A um, few things due today. Uh, quiz, if you have not taken it already, quiz three is available. Should be available through the end of the day today. I did not double check that, but should be available through the end of the day today, or six o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, the second set of solar observations, exam one corrections if you want to turn those in, and uh, homework four is also due. There is a special Dropbox up on D2L for the exam corrections. If you're going to, we're not going to turn them in in class today, if you're going to turn them in afterwards, you can do that. I will need your exam back tomorrow then in that case. So make sure you bring it in so I can have it so I can go through and look at your exam and look at the corrections that you've done so I know, so I can make the adjustments there. And then homework four, of course, can be submitted as well. So that cleans up what's due today. Then we have the iTunes quiz that will be available starting tomorrow. Once I get to see what the picture is and can make up my 12th question, we'll have that ready and that'll be available the last few days this week. You can take that. Exam three, yes I know we just got one back and here they go again. Uh, exam three will be on the 12th of June covering chapter 10 which we finished up last week and then 11 and 12 which we'll be working on the beginning part of this week and should be through all that material, should be through all that material before the exam. Homework five. Did I ever give out homework five? I did not. Okay. Well, I have it due the 12th. I'm going to give it to you today, which is the 10th, which is kind of rushing it. If you can get it done by the 12th, that's great. If it takes an extra day or two, I will not, penali I will not penalize you if you get it to me by the end of the week. Um, but I do recommend looking at it because it's the material for the exam. So I'm sorry that I did not give that to you. In fact, I'm going to give you six as well so I don't forget that. So I'm actually giving you five and six. Um, five and six. So I'm leaving it up there as due on that on Wednesday with the exam. But if you need the later in the day Wednesday and turn it in Thursday, I won't. You won't be counted as late. So that's up to you on it. But I still recommend looking at it. Don't just start looking at it after the exam. You might start recognizing all this stuff that you might have seen before. So homework five, homework six, and then the article review. The second article review I have due at the end of this week, and then there'll be a third one due. Probably nothing due next week. Probably due the beginning of the final week of class, which is only two weeks away. Scary. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Two, two weeks from today, we'll be saying this is the last week of classes. So, and we just started. Yeah, you've got you got a real good. So. Eight in the morning until nine. nine wow. So, <laughs> any questions on the assignments? Homework six that I just gave you will not be due until next week, and then we'll have seven and eight due the end of the towards the end of the end of that week or the beginning of the following. No, no, no. Alrighty. All right. On to the picture of the day for today. Uh, picture of the day is the Large Magellanic Cloud taken in the ultraviolet. Large Magellanic Cloud is actually a gal another galaxy, a galaxy that uh, orbits around our own Milky Way. It's a very small, relatively small galaxy and doesn't really stand out very well in this image. The galaxy is actually most of this image. This is part of it here towards the center, part of it up towards the upper portion here. When we look at it in the ultraviolet, we're really seeing the hottest stars standing out. So the very hottest stars. And we were just talking about some of this last week, but those stars that are 30 and 40,000 degrees, many times the temperature of the sun, 
they're emitting most of their radiation and really bright in the ultraviolet. So in the visible light, they'll look nice and blue. In the ultraviolet, they'll be incredibly bright. They're much brighter than a typical star. So it makes them stand out, and it makes the regions where stars are forming stand out a lot more. And one way we can see this is to look at the two pictures simultaneously. And with the wonders of the computer, there we go. Let's move the mouse over the picture, and all of a sudden, now we're looking at a visible light image, exactly the same portion of the sky. There's the galaxy stretching diagonally here and then part of it up towards the upper section. And if we move the mouse off, there's the same thing in the ultraviolet. So you can see where the stars, where there's a cluster of stars you know, in here, a little bit of a bluer tinge there. And then when we look at that in the ultraviolet, all of a sudden that's just incredibly bright. Those stars really stand out against everything else when we look at them in the ultraviolet. So it comes back to trying to drive home that point of being able to look at things in other wavelengths in order to be able to really understand the universe. We can't just look at it in visible light. We can't just look at it in ultraviolet or infrared or x-rays and gamma rays. We really need to see everything because each little bit of it tells us a little bit more. And we'll see that in today's lecture as we start talking about the interstellar medium. We'll actually look at You'll be able to look in and see star formation by looking at using radio waves and by using infrared waves where we can look through dusty material. <coughs> but we'll be looking about galaxies. We'll be hitting, getting onto galaxies next week and talking about our galaxy and other galaxies um, probably by next, by next week. So the Large Magellanic Cloud is one of them and actually one of the, the closest uh, galaxy, closest, gal closest uh, galaxy to ours. Uh, but a much smaller one, sort of a little satellite galaxy of our own. Question, questions? No, no, no. Okay. All right. Well, let's head on. And then tomorrow's picture will be the last of the ones for the uh, next iTunes quiz. All right. Well, we are on to the interstellar medium. And that is here. Uh, interstellar medium is Really, any material between the stars is really what it refers to. So we're studying that material between the stars. So not stars themselves, although in this chapter towards the end we'll start talking about how stars actually form uh, from the material in the interstellar medium. But within and between the stars there is gas and there is dust, dusty material that exists between them. And when that material gets uh, excited or heated up, we can actually see it. So, for example, it could be in a planetary nebula surrounding a star. That's material, gaseous material that has gotten excited by the heat of that star and causes it to glow. Lots of times there's also a lot of material in the interstellar medium that's just completely invisible. It's not something we can see simply because it's just dark. It's not emitting any visible light for us to see. Maybe we can only see it, it's very cold, maybe we'll only see it in radio waves or in infrared waves. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this chapter. And we're going to look at, first of all, what is the interstellar matter? And then we're going to go and look at star forming regions. So how does this material get clumped together to begin forming stars? Um, dark dust clouds are one of the, one of the uh, materials that form. That some of this material gets together and gets clumped together big enough 
that it actually will blot out light. So like a great cloud in the sky blocking out the light of the sun, you can have a great cloud in space, not a cloud in the similar sense, but a cloud of material that blocks out the light from stars behind it. And then we'll spend the last part of the chapter looking at how stars form, so forming stars much like the sun and stars of uh, other masses. So what is it like for a star like the sun to form? For both this chapter and the next, we'll look at the sun in very much detail. And then we'll look at how, what happens for a star that's more massive than the sun and what happens for a star that's me less massive than the sun. And then specifically talking about star clusters, uh, formation of star clusters, and um, how we can see how star clusters form and how we can begin to see how stars change within those star clusters. So let's start off with what the interstellar medium is. And it really has two components. It is gas and it is dust. Gas would be like single atoms, atoms of hydrogen, atoms of oxygen, atoms of carbon, atoms of you know any of the atoms in the periodic table, uh, just loose. Primarily hydrogen and helium. About 90, 98-99% of the universe is hydrogen and helium. So all the stuff we're made up of is the very rare elements, you know, the carbons and the oxygen. Those are all very rare if you just pick a random element out of the universe. You got about a 90% chance that it's hydrogen, about a 10% chance that it's helium. And whatever you rounded off and missed is everything else, including all the stuff we're made up of. So most of the gas is primarily hydrogen and helium, although there are traces of everything else within it. Dust is larger clumps of, par clumps of particles. So you're starting to get larger particles. And dust is very good at absorbing light. Gas doesn't. Gas is not good at absorbing light. Gas, the, material, the light will pass right through it unless you happen to excite that gas with, remember, those exact wavelengths that it likes. Right? Hydrogen likes that re specific red light. So hydrogen will be real good at absorbing that red light. But if it's a little bit longer wavelength or a little bit shorter wavelength, the hydrogen doesn't care and the light just streams right through a hydrogen cloud. A dust cloud doesn't do that. A dust cloud is thicker particles and will actually completely block out light. And that's what you're seeing here. This is a dark dust cloud in space. It's not that there's no stars there. There's just as many stars right here as there are here. They're just hidden. They're hidden behind this dust cloud. This dust is absorbing all of that light from behind them. So the dust absorbs the light and it also turns it redder. Turns it redder because it absorbs the blue light even better than it absorbs the red light. So if you look at all these stars right around the edge of this, a lot of them seem very red. And that is because all their blue light has been absorbed. They could really be very blue stars. You just can't tell because there's so much dust there. The dust absorbs all that blue light. Just like the Earth's atmosphere does to the sun, right? You look at the sun at sunset, it looks very reddish orange. Sun didn't change color. It's still the same color it was during the middle of the day. But it's going through so much more atmosphere that the blue light has all gotten scattered out of there, so the sun looks a little bit redder. Well, the same thing is happening here to the stars. As that starlight passes through the dust cloud, the blue light gets absorbed out, gets scattered out first and disappears. And eventually, if there's enough dust there, even the red light gets scattered out and you don't see anything. But the ones that do make it through right along the edges are all going to look a little bit redder. So the, you have the gas, 
Small particles, a lot of the material, primarily hydrogen, helium. Dust is what really blocks out the light. Dust is the bigger, bigger particles that will actually block out the light coming from behind it. So as I said, if you could look at this in the infrared, you'd actually see there's lots of stars behind here. They're just all hidden out by that dust cloud. So here's the example. There's that same picture I just showed you. A little bit smaller version on the right-hand side here. That's what we just saw on the previous page. That's in the visible part of the spectrum. That's what we see if we look at it with a normal optical telescope. If we instead look at it with an infrared telescope, we just filled in all those stars. They're there. They're just hidden in visible light. We cannot see them. So that does tell us, so we can learn about what the, you know, that there are stars there. But we couldn't see them before. And we couldn't see them with a visible telescope. So until we had other types of telescopes, we couldn't have looked in, to, in beyond that dust cloud to have seen them. <coughs> and as I mentioned, they absorb blue light. They're much better at absorbing blue light. So when you take the spectrum here, there's the overall spectrum of the star going from very long wavelengths to very short. Might have some spectral lines in it. What happens here, when it goes through the dust cloud, the blue light gets almost completely wiped out. It gets wiped out a lot more. The red light gets absorbed a little bit. The infrared even less. The radio even less. But what does not change is the position of the spectral lines. You have pattern one, two, three spectral lines there. They're exactly the same. It doesn't shift anything with the lines. All it does is wipe out a lot of the blue light and much more blue light than it absorbs in the red portion of the spectrum. So we could still take a spectrum of this star. It might look very red, but it might really be a very hot O-type star. The spectral lines have not changed. None of that changes in any of this. Okay. So here's our own galaxy, a part of it. This is part of our Milky Way, a little portion of it. We have some bright star clouds there. A couple of the nebulae are labeled here for you. Just showing some of the nebulae near the Milky Way, uh, regions where stars are forming. And we're going to go ahead and go through this in more, in more detail uh, coming through in this chapter. But they are, there are a lot of areas around the Milky Way in the plane of our galaxy where stars are forming. Now we can't see a lot of detail about our galaxy. We see a lot of dust clouds as well. And we saw that one dust cloud on the previous uh, two slides. Well, there's lots of them here. And it blocks out a lot of the light coming from our galaxy. There are many, many stars in our galaxy that we can't even see because there's so much dust in between us and them that none of their light makes it here to Earth. And in fact, if you look towards the center of our galaxy, which, uh, give it another about a month or so, and you look south, go out, in this, go out and look south, you're looking towards the center of our galaxy in the evening. So go out in the evening, about another month, month and a half. The center of our galaxy is in the constellation of Sagittarius. We'll be up on the southern horizon. And you'd be able to see the center of our galaxy. It won't stand out as being incredibly bright. You won't even see this from around here because of the skylights. But even if you had a very dark sight, it's not going to stand out as the brightest part, one of the brightest parts of the sky because of all that dust. All that dust is blocking out the light and making it harder to see. If you point a radio telescope there, It'll whip off the scale. It's incredibly bright. 
There's lots of radio waves coming through there that can penetrate right through the dust and allow us to study the center of our galaxy. So we can study the center of our galaxy. Now we couldn't do that 100 years ago. We had no way to study it because we had no way to penetrate the dust. We didn't have telescopes that would look at wavelengths that could get through the dust. If you're just looking at visible light, you're stuck. All you can see is what makes it through and the dust is very good at absorbing out a lot of that visible light and we'll see that when we talk a little bit more about our galaxy in the coming chapters. Now these are a couple nebulae, just these are our star forming regions so we're starting to get some idea of uh, what kind of things we're looking at here and what sizes that are forming. Um, if you look at their densities, these densities are incredibly low there's only 80 million particles in every cubic meter. Well, 80 million particles, that's a lot of particles, right? 80 million particles. That's nothing. You know, hold your fingers like this and you've got more than 80 million particles in a little cube, little tiny cube like that in, the, in our atmosphere here on Earth. So these are incredibly small densities. These are good, it's a, it's a decent vacuum. You know, in terms of that, for here on Earth, that's a decent vacuum. You've only got 80 million particles in every cubic, cubic meter is like this. And this, you know, make this into a cube. You've only got 80 million particles in, in there. Sounds, again, it sounds like a lot, but there's so many particles in every cubic centimeter of space, you know, much smaller of here on, on Earth. So these are very, very low densities, but they're gigantic. They're parsecs in size. Remember, a parsec is a little over three light years. So you're talking about things that is the diameter of 20 light years across. So very big in size, meaning that there's a lot of material in these clouds. So not just the mass of the sun, or ten times the mass of the sun, but hundreds or even thousands times the mass of the sun. So these are the type of regions. You've got so much mass there that once you get concentrations of that mass, you can actually have stars begin to form. So not very dense, very few particles every uh, cubic meter, but when you can start to condense that together and look over the large diameters that we're looking at, there's a lot of mass in there, a lot of times the mass of the sun, and a lot to eventually form a good sized cluster. You, know, you could form, a, you could turn all this matter into stars, you could form a cluster of 500 stars like the sun. It's a good sized cluster. Now that won't happen, not all the matter will be able to convert it into stars, some would be left over, some would make bigger stars, some would make smaller stars, but overall you could form a decent sized cluster out of, out of any of these. So there's a lot of material there, even though the density is incredibly low. Now, nebula really means anything that looks fuzzy in the sky. So we have a couple different types of nebulae. We'll have the dark nebulae. We'll have, in this picture, we have emission, uh, emission nebulae. And we'll have a reflection nebulae. And in fact, we can see all of them in the one picture to the left there. We can see examples of each of these. A dark nebula is what we've been looking at before. That's just a dust cloud that blocks out light. So we can't see beyond it because there's so much dust in there. The material is so concentrated. Again, 
not concentrated as being solid like we have things solid here, but concentrated when you look at it over many, many light years worth of material that is dense enough to block out all that light behind us. So you've got enough material there. And in fact, in these dust lanes, in this nebula here, you have enough material that you can't see the rest of the nebula behind it. It's enough dust that it blocks out all of that. Now, if you also have that, you can also have other types of nebulae. An emission nebula is one of them. An emission nebula is gas heated by young stars. And that's ultraviolet radiation. Young stars, very, very hot, like we looked at those ones on the Large Magellanic Cloud earlier today. They emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation. They excite the gas, cause it to glow. And you get that reddish glow here as an emission nebula. Very hot star here heating it up and causing this nebula to glow in the red. The coloring tells you what it's made up of. Red is primarily due to hydrogen. So when you have lots of hydrogen present, then you get a reddish glow. Now the other thing that you can get is a reflection nebula, which is a reflection nebula is actually caused by dust, as you might guess, reflecting starlight. So based on its name, reflection, it is dust that is reflecting the starlight. That's what you're seeing in the upper portion of this picture. You see emission here where this hot star is exciting all of the hydrogen gas here. In this part, it's a dustier area. It's got more dust than gas. And all that starlight that's heading out gets reflected, gets scattered by that dust, and it looks like it gets a bluish glow to it. So reflection nebula, emission nebula, reflection nebula will look blue because all it's doing is reflecting the, the, the light of those same stars that are creating the emission nebula. Same young stars, same very hot stars, same stars emitting a lot of ultraviolet light. So reflection nebula will tend to look blue. And emission nebula will tend to look red because of hydrogen. So because of hydrogen emission, the emission nebula will try to look red. A dark nebula will look dark. You won't see much of anything. Now, the other pretty picture on the other side, all sorts of cool colors, is the same nebula. Can you see the similarities between them? A little bit? The difference is that one's visible light. That's what you'd see if you took a nice picture of it through a nice telescope. That's visible light. But can you see the pasts here? You know, the same sort of dust lanes that were dark here are now light. This is taken in the infrared. Again, we're seeing through that dust, so the areas that were dusty here, especially this, these dust lanes, now we can see through them. They're actually warm and visible in the infrared. So again, we can get that other view. We can also see that there's a lot of material up above where that reflection nebula is, right? Up in here, there's nothing in the visible image. Looks like we're at the end of the nebula, are we? Actually, no. There's a lot of material up there, still well up above it, and there's still more material that is visible. And that's just some of it just may not be excited enough by the star to cause it to glow yet. 
Now another type of nebula that we'll talk about later but really wasn't differentiated early on, you know, a hundred years ago, there were also uh, things called spiral nebulae. Nebulae that looked like fuzzy little objects but looked like, uh, looked like little spirals. Those were eventually found to be the galaxies. Which is why they're separated out of this section and we'll touch, talk of them more in another chapter. But if you see references in an older book, they'll refer to the spiral nebulae, which were really not fully identified. It's been less than 100 years still since they were fully identified as galaxies. That they were something different than these type of nebulae. But early on when the nebulae were being cataloged, there was little difference between this type of nebula or this or a spiral nebula or a planetary nebula or even a supernova remnant. They were all the same general type of object. It wasn't until we got a better physical understanding that we were able to tell that some of these were within our galaxy and were regions where stars were forming. Some of them were actually whole other galaxies that could be much bigger than our own. All right, and I gave you a little bit of this. Um, there were the emission nebulae. I already talked to you about that. They're going to glow red due to hydrogen gas. That's that prominent red line of hydrogen. When we sketched that, uh, what was it, a week and a half ago or so, we sketched out the emission lines of hydrogen when we looked at them through the tube. There was a very bright red line of hydrogen. The, that glows, the universe glows with that red light. If you have enough energy to excite the hydrogen atoms, you're going to get that red, that red line of hydrogen. The dust lanes are actually, uh, when we looked at that previous picture, they're actually a part of the nebula. So it's not like there's a nebula here and then dust clouds in between us and then us a little further along. They're actually, all the, the dust clouds are actually part of that nebula themselves. So it's actually regions within that nebula. Let me go back one. It's actually regions within this nebula. If you could actually go out and travel to this nebula, there would actually be dust that is really associated with that. And it's probably regions, might be regions, where stars are still continuing to form as material is condensing out of this gas cloud. And where some stars have already formed from what thousands of years ago was probably another different dark nebula. You could go back and look at it, you know, 10,000, 100,000 years ago. So how do the nebulae work? Well, here it is schematically. What we're seeing is, here's the dark cloud off to the right-hand side, great dark cloud. Some stars have started to form in it. So there's a few stars that have started to form. Okay, a few stars are starting to form here. They emit lots of ultraviolet energy that excites this gas and causes it to glow, forming an emission nebula. So hot stars, a lot of ultraviolet radiation excite that gas. We get a lot of emission and form an emission nebula here. We also get within that cloud some darker areas. So here's some of those dust lanes that form. They're darker clumps that may still be in the process of collapsing to form a star. They haven't gotten there yet. These ones started first and formed. These ones haven't quite had that time yet. Come back in 100,000 years, million years. Then there'll be more stars there. And now then there'll be more stars forming further deep into this nebula. It's a continuing process. So just looking at those two, that explains there's the emission nebula. 
There's the dark nebulae, large one over here, much more hidden, dark clumps here sort of blocking out some of the light from that. So now we need the reflection nebula. How do we get a reflection nebula? Well, this one glows in visible light and sends visible light out into space in all sorts of directions. And if you happen to hit a cloud that's a little bit dusty, has a little bit of dust to it around there, it's sending all sorts of visible light here towards this dust cloud. Now, this dust cloud is going to be very good at absorbing and scattering blue light. It's going to get rid of the blue light. And the red light is going to travel straight through it. So it absorbs the blue light, but it does send that back out in all directions. It doesn't just keep that energy. It has to send it back out. So visible light comes in. Red light keeps coming out straight because it doesn't get affected by the dust near as much and the blue light gets scattered and comes from all directions. So if we look at this cloud from some other angle, all we see is a little bit of this blue light coming that was reflected from this star here, heading off in a different direction, gets reflected by this dust cloud and comes to us. We see the same kind of thing here on Earth. Right? Not today when it's pouring down rain. Or is it still not pouring now? I don't know, maybe it stopped. It was pouring when I came in early this morning. But you know, you have a nice blue sky. That blue sky is caused by sunlight. You're seeing, remember I told you how the sunset, it looks red, right? Sunset looks red because the sky is, the atmosphere is absorbing out all that blue light. Well, it's scattering it around, so it comes from all directions. So really, when you go out and look at a blue sky, you're seeing the light coming from all those sunsets that was originally, you know, the sun should have looked white at the sunset, but all the blue light was being scattered out. Now it's coming from all directions. So it's the same type of, general type of process, just a different material. Instead of the atmosphere doing it as it does it here on Earth, it is actually the dust cloud that is doing the same kind of thing here. So you can get it, an emission nebula, the hot area excited by the stars, the dark nebulae or the clumps left over, and the reflection nebulae or another nearby dusty cloud that is reflecting that sunlight, that starlight to us. So here's some examples of some pictures of some nebulae. Get some very nice pictures. Usually a lot of the pretty pictures that you see, you don't, you don't see lots of pretty pictures of stars just because they're points of light. You, know, you don't zoom in and get to, can't zoom in and see a star in any great detail. Some star clusters are nice. But when you look at these and you've zoomed in on a couple of them, this is this section zoomed in here. You get these almost like finger-like tendrils coming out. And what you have is these are the darker regions where stars are working on, where stars are process, in the process of forming. And as the young stars have worked through their energy, they start to evaporate these. So these are the denser areas that are left over, which means probably right at the tip of this is a very dense area because it's very hard for other stars that have formed and their energy to push it off into space, to evaporate it essentially. So there's a lot of material here Again, come back in 100,000 years, there'll be a star there. Or maybe a couple stars. That's what's forming in this. And there's just too much material there that, for it to evaporate. Now, you see something similar with this uh, with flowing water, right? If you have, imagine water flowing, you have light flowing here trying to wipe out and clear out this dusty area. If you had water flowing on the Earth and you get a denser part where you get a rock, right? You have a rock there, well, it protects the material behind it and you get that water kind of flowing around it and getting a similar, similar type pattern. We get something like this also out in space where stars are forming. So stars forming in these dense tips and then 
being protecting the material behind it, which is left over. And that's the denser areas. Where there was no star forming, boom, the stars were able to wipe out that and push that material back further into this nebula. And the bottom one, again, is similar. These are all uh, visible light pictures here. Uh, looking, again, just at this very core where you get some of these tips where there's going to be a star. Stars are in the process of forming, and that's what keeps those, keeps those there. Emission nebulae are a very hot, uh, very thin gas. We see the emission lines telling us exactly what it's made up of. So if we want to find out what an emission nebula is made up of, we take that spectrum, just like we did here in class a week or so ago, and look at the blues, the purples, the greens. What do they tell us what is in here? There are hydrogen lines. There are helium lines. There's oxygen. There's neon. And we can look at all those and find out what the nebula is made up of. Again, primarily in all of these, we're going to see lots of hydrogen, lots of helium. So there'll be little traces of everything else, but again, they are traces. Much smaller in percentage number than the hydrogen or helium. All right, let's look at that dark dust cloud again. Go back to the dark nebulae. Uh, that's on the left-hand side there. That's a visible image. So. Not that it's gone, not that there's nothing there, there's lots of, there's material there, but a lot of it is blocked out, blocking out the light of the stars that would be behind it. If we look at this same part of the sky instead of in the visible part of the spectrum, if we look at it in the radio, all of a sudden this very dark area here starts to glow very brightly. There's a lot of material there emitting radio radiation, radio light. And we can see that as it sort of travels up through here, where the contours follow, where the dark, most intense radio radiation is, is right where there are the fewest stars. That's because that's the dust areas. And those clouds are very good at absorbing visible light. They absorb it all out. That heats them up. They're a very cool temperature. So even though it heats them up a little bit, they're still very cool compared to a star <laughs> or compared to anything else that we see. And they will emit that radiation at radio wavelengths. So the light heats up that dust, and it glows in radio and infrared wavelengths, making it very bright in those. There are only a few degrees, typically. Uh, the coldest dust clouds would be you know, 10, 20 degrees above absolute zero, above as cold as you could possibly get. That would be how the that would be how cold they are. So incredibly cold. You know, sun is thousands of degrees, glows nice and bright in the visible. Things that were hundreds of degrees would glow in the infrared. When you get down to tens of degrees, you can't even excite things up into that level. You're exciting things up into the radio part of the spectrum. So here's another example of a very uh, dark cloud. Uh, you see the dust cloud there. It's not. I only have one image there. What happened to my other image? Okay, should be two images there. Sorry about that. Um, we can only see the dust cloud when we look at it with other uh, other wavelengths. This is the visible light image. So the dust cloud is here. If I had my other image on there, I'm going to have to check that after, find out where that went to. There would be some. Uh, there would be more material there that you could actually see that this is blocking out again that light. Here we see the same kind of thing. We see a very bright star. This is the bright star Antares. 
Remember that from last time, a couple times ago? That was that gigantic star. Put that at the center of the solar system and not only is Mercury gone and Venus and the Earth and Mars, it gets like halfway out to Jupiter if you put that star at the center of our solar system. So it's a gigantic star. But there's also some other clusters there, but you also see a reflection nebula. So hot stars reflecting light off the dust. You see that dark dust cloud. And again, I am missing a picture in the infrared, but the infrared picture would be like the ones we've looked at before. We'd actually be able to see into these dustier areas and you can actually see into them. Here's one example of a prominent infrared um, object, uh, infrared, prominent dark object, the Horsehead Nebula uh, towards the constellation of Orion. You see the little horse head, you know, chess piece or something maybe? Right, the knight in chess, the little horse head sticking up there. Um, that is one of the ones that's really relatively distinctive, sort of stands out in space. Very pretty, it'll last for you know tens of thousands of years and then it will eventually be destroyed by those stars around it. As stars are in the process of forming, it's not a solid feature, it's constantly being eaten away by starlight pushing on it and pushing on it and collapsing it. And it would be gone if you could come back again and look at this part of the sky in 100,000 years, it would no longer be there. Might have a new interesting nebula that would appear, but that one would be long since gone. But that's just one of the dark nebulae that really kind of stands out. And when you look at it here, when you can actually look at it in the infrared and see more detail, you can actually start to see some of the detail that is involved. Not just that it's blocking out light, but there's actually a lot of material there. So maybe a star or two or a small cluster of stars is in the process of forming there within that dusty material. Now, how do we detect these? We've seen them. We could look at them in the infrared. We've seen that we could look at them in the radio. What are we actually detecting? If you recall when we did, we looked at the spectra, you had atoms jumping between energy levels. You had hydrogen with one level here, a level here, and a level here. And when a hydrogen atom jumped from this one to this one, that gave you this red photon, red particle of light when it jumped between the energy levels. The problem is in order to see that, you've got to take the hydrogen atom from energy level one and excite it up to at least energy level three in order to see that. That takes a lot of ultraviolet light. In a lot of these dust clouds, there isn't that much. There isn't enough energy to excite the hydrogen atom to cause it to glow in the red. So the hydrogen then becomes invisible. If you can't excite it enough, to get up to the first energy level, the hydrogen is essentially invisible and you can't see it. At least not in the visible part of the spectrum. In the radio portion of the spectrum, you can. There are other types of transitions that you can get, which are something like this, is that each of those particles within the hydrogen atom, the proton and the electron, has a spin associated with it. So the proton is spinning in one direction, the electron is spinning in another direction. So they actually like to spin opposite to each other. So if the proton is spinning this way, electron wants to spin the other direction. Sometimes you can excite the atom and jiggle that electron and get it spinning the opposite direction. So you could have this case where you have a proton spinning in one direction, electron spinning in the same direction. Just as the atom, the electron doesn't like being in an excited state up here, it always wants to go back down to the ground state, 
it doesn't like being in this excited state where it's spinning in the same direction as its proton. So it's going to jump down. It took a little bit of energy to get it up there. It's going to give off a little bit of energy to jump back down and we're going to get a particle of light. Not visible light, much, much too small of an energy for that, but actually radio wavelength and a wavelength of about 21 centimeters worth, so about there to the end. So about that size wavelength is what you'd be emitting. That doesn't take a lot of energy. 21 centimeters wavelength is only a tiny bit of energy. So atoms bumping around against each other could be enough to cause this to occur. Just as you have all these atoms in there and they're banging into each other, a little bit of energy can actually cause that spin to flip, drop it back down, and it emits a photon. That means that all of these dark dust clouds that are invisible in the visible part of the spectrum actually are emitting a lot of radio wavelengths. And that's what we saw in that one image. You saw a very dark area, invisible light on this side. But when you looked at the radio side, we had a lot of energy being emitted there. That was this type of reason. We're seeing it because of what we call what the, the spin flip of the hydrogen atom. Instead of spinning in the same direction, which they don't like to do, they'll drop down to spin in opposite directions and give off a little tiny bit of energy, a little particle of light. So we can actually map out, if we do this, uh, in this case it's not mapping out hydrogen specifically, it's actually mapping out a more complex molecule, but the same procedure applies. And what you notice is that, where do we see the visible light? It's all over here. Right, it's concentrated in this part of this portion of the section. Uh, this H2CO, which is hydrogen molecule and a carbon monoxide molecule together, actually peaks well off here. So where is the material? Where is most of the material? What we see here is what's illuminated, but there's actually a lot more matter out here. We're actually seeing into the we're seeing into that molecular cloud. We're seeing into that great dark cloud of matter. It doesn't emit any visible light. We can't see it. If we can point an optical telescope at it all day long and point right there where all that material is and we're not going to see it. If it's not emitting any light, you're not going to see it, right? Turn off all the light. We're in a windowless room. We turn off all the lights. It's going to get pretty dark. There's no light there. It doesn't matter if you sit there. If it's completely dark and you sit there for hours and hours, you're not going to see anything. Same thing with these. It's just not emitting any visible light here. So you're not actually going to see this. There's a lot more material out here that can be excited to emit radio waves that you cannot use to see, cannot see invisible part of the, of the light. Uh, don't worry about, there, there's different types of transitions, don't worry about that. I showed you one flip in there. When you get to more complex molecules, there's ways they can oscillate and do different things. Don't worry about that details. Mainly that you can see different parts of this nebula looking at different wavelengths is this what I'm looking for. So here's another radio map. Uh, of our Milky Way galaxy. And these are carbon monoxide areas. So lots of carbon monoxide, a very common stable molecule in the universe. Uh, not when you want to breathe, but very common one out in the universe. But when you see it concentrated, you're seeing areas where the gas and the dust is being concentrated and areas where stars are forming. So again, in the radio part of the spectrum, we can see this and we can map out the star formation a lot better than we can in the visible. In the visible, these clouds aren't emitting any light. And if there is one that's hot enough to emit light, there's usually so much dust in between us and it that we can't see anything. So 
So using the radio wavelengths actually allow us to map out these clouds and study the star formation. So how does the sun form? How does a star like the sun form? Well, you've got these big gas clouds we've been talking about. Gas and dust scattered out in space. The next thing that has to happen is that it has to be able to contract, has to start to contract. So you've got this great gas cloud out there someplace. Clear my nebulae here. And for some reason, you know, uh, great big gas cloud out there, remember, light years across, spinning a little bit maybe. Got a little bit of a slow spin to it. Not very fast. It's not spinning around in days or weeks or months or years. We're talking tens or hundreds or even millions of years to spin around once. But it's there and for some reason something starts it to collapse. A good question can be what? What is going to cause this cloud to collapse? It's not just going to collapse on its own. It would be perfectly happy sitting there. It doesn't just want to collapse. There's not enough material concentrated for it to start to collapse. But something could happen, which could be something as simple as, you know, two dust clouds, two of these clouds colliding into each other, smashing together, and starting the process of collapse. Once you, get a, once you start to get some condensation of material, then gravity starts to kick in and start to form stars. But you've got to get it started in the first place. So one way could be two colliding clouds. Another way could be a supernova. If a star over here were to happen to explode, it sends out a shock wave in all directions. So all those layers come out. As they crash into this nebula, they'll start to compress it. And then you'll start to get some denser regions that will begin to form stars. And that's the process that we're going to be looking at over the coming slides. What happens when something happens? Either clouds colliding, perhaps a shock wave, uh, perhaps even not even requiring a supernova, perhaps just the energy of a very hot star forming. That energy starts to compress more material deeper within that cloud. And that will happen, eventually that material will start to collapse, spin faster and faster, and get hotter and hotter, collapse more material, and eventually nuclear fusion will begin in its core. And once nuclear fusion begins, that's our definition of when we have a star. Till you form nuclear fusion, we have, you have no star. You've got to actually have that nuclear fusion to get a star. So here's when we start off. We have, if we look at just a couple of atoms, they're moving around. Here we've got atoms one through five. They're all moving close together. Trying to, trying to collapse together. Here they are at their closest. There's a little gravitational force between each one plugging on them. But guess what? Doesn't do much. They're moving so fast that five was here and it's moving this way. And it's moving so fast that it overwhelms the gravitational force. And they just head back away from each other. So when you have just a few atoms, there's not enough. There's not enough gravitational force. You have to start getting billions and billions and billions of atoms within each little tiny square centimeter. You have to get enough matter there in order to be over to overcome their just random motions. Every particle in the universe is moving you know, some, at some speed and in some direction. And sometimes they'll come together. But if you're only getting small clumps of them, they won't stay. They won't, there won't be enough gravitational force between these individual atoms to cause them to start to clump together. You need more and more of them in order to do that. 
All right, here's the stages. We're going to have about 14 stages here. Don't worry about them by number. I'm, again, it's one of these things I'm looking for the general ideas. I'm not going to ask you what happens in stage 3 in a question. Um, but this is the stages for formation of a star. So this chapter actually goes through the first seven, and then chapter 12 will pick up with, chapter se with step seven and go on through the, through the end life of a star. But these are the different stages that you'll get of forming a star from a cloud in the interstellar medium. And stage one is that interstellar cloud. What do we have out there? We have a cloud of gas and dust out in space. There it is. It's just sitting there. Might be spinning slowly, but it's very cold. You know, surface might be 10 degrees Kelvin. That's almost the, almost the temperature of space, not very hot. Its central density might be, well, what, a billion particles in every cubic meter? A lot, right? No, nothing. Look what it's going to get up to. It's going to get up to incredible densities when it gets up to a main sequence star. So here we're getting up to levels of, you know, the density of water. So here we're, you know, tiny, tiny fractions, essentially a very good vacuum. How big is it? It's gigantic. So what you're really looking at is looking at the patterns, looking at what is happening to each of these as we go through the stages. So stage one is, an inter is the interstellar cloud. As it collapses, it will begin to fragment and break into pieces. So likely when you have something like this that begins to collapse, it usually doesn't form just one star. It won't form one gigantic star that's a thousand times the mass of the sun or 500 times the mass of the sun. It'll break into little pieces. So it'll start collapsing and it'll break into four pieces and those will break into four or eight pieces and it'll constantly fragment down into more manageable sizes. So those clouds will start to fragment. That is stages two and three. It'll then form as it begins to start producing energy and start to glow. Not nuclear energy yet, no nuclear fusion going on yet. It'll become what we call a protostar. Not quite a star yet. Not quite a star because it's not undergoing nuclear reactions in its core. But it is called a protostar. It is, it is producing energy and it will actually start to glow just from the energy of its collapse. When you take material and collapse it down, it increases the energy and heats up the object. Eventually, it'll reach 10 million degrees. Once you hit 10 million degrees in the core, you're now able to undergo nuclear fusion. You have enough energy to fuse material together and you formed yourself a star. And it will then eventually become a main sequence star. Take a little bit more time. It'll temperature, it'll still continue stabilizing and eventually reach a very high density at the center, about 100, 150 times that of water. Surface temperature about like that of our sun, 6,000 degrees. Central temperature about uh, 15 million degrees. And its size is now down from you know, gigantic size, talking light years across, to about the size of a star, the size of our star. The other interesting thing to look at here is the times. How long does it take all of this to happen? Well, to go from stage 1 to 2 is about 2 million years. 2 to 3, you're talking 30,000, 100,000, a million years, 10 million years, 30 million years. So really you're talking about 30, 40, uh, 45 million years. Long time, but not, not that long. Compared to 10 billion years, once it gets to stage 7, we're already done talking about stage 7 essentially. Stage 7 we talked about a little bit when we talked about the sun. In terms of other stars, we don't know anything. That's the longest stage. That lasts 10 billion years. It'll take it, you know, 
millions of years, 40, 50 million years to get there from the time of collapse, but that's relatively short compared to how long it actually spends on the main sequence. How long it actually spends as a star like the sun. So you think about that, in the sun's lifetime, it's been around 5 billion years. How many 50 million year segments could you put in that? Boy, that's a lot. How much star formation has the sun seen going on in its lifetime? A lot of it. 50 million years, twice would be 100 million years, right? Three times 150, 200, and you know, you've already seen four cycles, you've only gone 200 million years. Haven't come close to 5 billion. So, sun has seen lots and lots of cycles, has seen lots and lots of stars come and go over its lifetime because these stages go very, very quickly. Now, not all that, um, in fact, they go quicker. If you, have, if you look at big stars, they actually go even faster. So, if you look at a star much more massive than the sun, they go even faster. They'll actually form even quicker. And there are cases we'll look at where, you know, the, a cluster of stars can form and the most massive stars can form and live and die and be gone before the least massive stars has even made it to the main sequence. So we're going to look at each of these in a little bit more detail here, but that's just kind of the summary. So let's look at stage one. Stage one, you start to contract it, start to contract this star. Some kind of shock wave, uh, maybe another star nearby, maybe a supernova explosion, maybe colliding. As it contracts, it starts to break. So you don't form one gigantic star out of this big nebula. You could form one star, you know, 500, if this is 500 solar masses, form one gigantic star 500 times the mass of the sun. That's not what happens. For stability, as it starts to collapse, it breaks up, and these may break up into parts, and each of those parts may break up into parts. So instead of getting one gigantic star here, you've got about 20 or 16, 20 little stars actually beginning to form a cluster of stars. So as that cloud starts to collapse, again, for whatever reason, Colliding stars, colliding uh, clusters, colli a supernova explosion condensing part of that, or you know some other event that causes it to start to collapse. Once it does, it starts to break down into much smaller pieces and then begin to form little individual stars. Now these aren't stars. We're only in stage one. We haven't begun to get to stars yet. We're just talking about much smaller gas clouds. So we're taking this big gas cloud and fragmenting it into much littler ones that eventually each of these at its core would form a star. Oop. Try again. There we go. Stage two. Within each of those fragmented clouds, you continue to collapse. So they'll fragment as they're, as they're very low density, they start to fragment and break apart. Once you get enough density, there's enough material there that gravity is holding it together and it doesn't start, doesn't continue to fragment anymore. It doesn't continue to fall apart. So once you get down to a certain density size, which is this kind of density that will form something like a star, uh, maybe a star the mass of the sun, maybe something ten times the mass of the sun, but once it gets to that sufficient density as it collapses, the fragmentation stops. And by stage three, we're heating it up. Again, there's no energy source at the center. There's no hydrogen fusion. We haven't gotten to a high enough temperature yet. We're only at 10,000 degrees. But as you collapse all that material in and brain it down, it actually re it'll release energy as well, just from the gravitational energy being released. And we've taken that uh, cloud from about 10 degrees to about 10,000 degrees at the center. So the center of it is actually getting warm. You know, 10,000 degrees, a little bit warm even for us. Surface of the sun is about 6,000. 
compared to what we need to get it to in order to actually produce energy, we're not even close. So not even close to the amount of, energy, amount of temperature that we need. It has to continue collapsing. We still have a star that is you know, times, several times the size of the solar system. Not, it's not even a star. I shouldn't even say a star. We have a cloud that is several times the size of the solar system, still slowly condensing. So here's some examples of where we might be seeing this. On the right is the constellation of Orion. Okay, you may have seen that, in the, especially in the winter sky. There's Betelgeuse, bright red star. There's Rigel, the blue star. There's the stars in the belt. There's the sword. That middle one there, again, is actually the Orion Nebula. So if you go out and look at Orion, identify the body, the four stars, three stars in the belt, three stars in the sword. If you can see all three of those, that middle one you're seeing is not actually a star. That's actually a nebula. You're actually seeing a region of star formation, which if you zoom in, here's what we're seeing here. There's the sword of Orion. And that large, bright object at the center is the Orion Nebula. And if we zoom in on that even more and look at that in more detail, we can actually see the whole, just that detailed Orion Nebula here. Within that, there's lots of stars that are in the process of forming. Visible, infrared, we're back to visible here. Here we look up in the radio portion of the spectrum at some of these. And if we look at this little knot right here, we start to see several large clumps of material. Again, not stars yet. These are much too large to be stars, not, uh, not uh, hot enough to be stars. But we're beginning to see protostars. We see clouds that are in the process of condensing into form clouds. So these would be those very early stages we can see. We're seeing those very, very early stages where the clouds are beginning to collapse. We can also see some protostars. Uh, protostars have collapsed enough. They're actually emitting a lot of infrared radiation and do look relatively bright. So we can actually see, we can see those as well. So within, the, within Orion, we're seeing the whole early stages of star formation. We see parts of the dark nebulae. We're seeing uh, young stars and we're seeing everything in between. So we're seeing stars before they've begun to form. We're seeing the very youngest stars that have just formed. And we're seeing everything in between in terms of clouds that are collapsing and protostars. Now we can't watch them. Again, we're seeing them only as a snapshot. So we see these. We can sit there and watch these all our lives and come back and look at them in 10 years and 50 years and they're not going to change. Remember those stages. Even the short ones took tens of thousands, 100,000 years to go. So we're not going to see them change. But we're catching a snapshot of all these different pieces. We can see that collapse here in fragmentation. We can start to see where the protostars are forming. We can see the young stars. If we could come back in a million years, the Orion Nebula is gone, just gone. And we have a nice cluster of stars there with maybe a little bit of uh, fuzzy remnants of what was the nebula around it. And then perhaps deeper into this cloud, there's more parts of this cloud that have not been excited yet and not begun to form stars. We'll probably see a new nebula will have formed in there and we'll see a new star forming regions. Stage four. Well, I told you we were going to see the HR diagram. Now you get to see it for a lot of the next, the next chapter, next couple chapters. The core of the star is the core of that cloud is becoming a protostar. And we can actually map out where it comes on the HR diagram. It gets to the point where we'll actually have a surface temperature that's high enough that it shows up here. You know, 10 degrees doesn't show up on the HR diagram when we go down to about the coolest stars. And it's actually bright enough 
that to be visible. And it will actually show up up here in the red giant region of the HR diagram. That doesn't make it a red giant star. Red giant star is something completely different. It comes out in the same part of the HR diagram if we could map it there. We don't see it there because these protostars are buried in gas and dust. So they're invisible to us. At least optically, we can't see it. So we can measure it. We can measure it in infrared and radio. But if we tried to do it optically, we'd never be able to see it. So we wouldn't see any of the stars that we look at and we see up in this red giant phase are not protostars. But that is where it would start to come on the HR diagram, theoretically, if you could track it in and not have anything else absorbing its light. And then what we're going to do is we go through the rest of the stages, and in chapter 12, we're going to follow the path of this star. How does its brightness change? How does its luminosity change? How does its temperature change over the course of its life? This star right here we see at stage 4 has got to make it to here. It's got to make it to where the sun is. So it actually has to get dimmer than it is right now. And it also has to get hotter than it is right now to work its way down there. So that's what we're going to see is how do we go from stage 4 to the sun, which is stage 7. And then once we get there, the next chapter will take it from the sun up back into this red giant range where it really will become a red giant star. This is where we're starting to see uh, planetary uh, planets form. So you've got this great cloud on the left-hand side as it starts to collapse down. Again, very short times. Two million years there, that's a long one. Once you start to collapse, 30,000 years. It's not, astronomically speaking, with all the numbers I've given you, that's incredibly short. Even 100,000 years to get down to these stages, you're only talking, you know, 100,000 years you can go from this dust cloud to stars to a very uh, beginning of a protostar. So you can take, do that in a relatively short time. Now remember that the stars themselves were, I told you they were in equilibrium, that the pressure they were producing, pushing outward from their energy, was balanced by gravity pulling them down. If they're not balanced, then they're either going to collapse or they're going to explode. But a star like the sun is in a perfect state of balance. These stars are not yet. There is not enough, they're not producing any energy at the center, so there's no energy pushing out. Gravity is still pulling them down, so they're going to collapse. So these stars are in the process of still collapsing because they're not in what we call an equilibrium. So they're collapsing in the process of forming a planetary system here, perhaps. And then eventually we would see a, you'd see a star or a protostar with a few planets beginning to orbit it. But all the energy right now is just coming from that collapse as you bring material from very far out and collapse it down in towards the center where this star, where this protostar is in the process of forming. And then as we move through, again I've got the diagrams here that show size. This, proto, this uh, protostar, early protostar, might have been a hundred times the size of the sun. It's collapsing. It's getting smaller and smaller. It means that it moves down on the HR diagram. So it becomes about 10 times the size of the sun, just a couple times the size of the sun. And we can actually follow it theoretically. Now again, we can't follow any individual one of these stars. We can't just take a star and say, well, watch it and see how it moves. The time frames are much too long for us, but although it may be relatively short for the star. But it's going to slowly move down the HR diagram. Its luminosity is decreasing, even though its temperature is getting hotter. It's getting hotter and hotter. But it's getting so much smaller that the, the total luminosity is actually decreasing. So it's getting less and less bright. 
and then it forms this little hook. It's gotten hotter and hotter as nuclear fusion reactions occur here at 6. It becomes physically a star. Now it actually is producing its own energy. Still not in equilibrium. Okay? Started producing its energy. It's got nuclear fusion going around in the core. But it's producing only a little bit of energy. Not enough to balance gravity. So it continues to collapse. As it continues to collapse from 6 to 7, it continues to get smaller and smaller, heats the temperature up more and more at the core, producing more and more energy. Right? Eventually it gets to the point where it's producing just enough energy that's needed to stop the collapse. And it will sit there. That's when it will reach stage 7, main sequence, and now it's done and boring. And it's just going to sit there for the next 10 billion years if it's a star like the sun and not do much of anything. Yeah, we looked at the sun in more detail. It's got some cool things, solar flares, sunspots, all that stuff that's going on. But in terms of the star doing anything or going anywhere on the HR diagram, it's just going to sit there for 10 billion years. Nothing else will happen to it at that point. So stage 6, that's where we become a star. Stage 6 is it's a protostar. It's just got energy from gravitational collapse. Finally, at stage 6, the core reaches 10 million degrees. 10 million is the minimum temperature you need to actually undergo hydrogen reactions, to fuse hydrogen into helium. That's when it officially becomes a star. So definition of a star is an object that is producing energy through nuclear fusion. So when we look at some of these other objects, a protostar is not a star in the formal definition sense. It is what's going to become a star, but now this protostar is officially a star. The star will continue to contract, again, until it reaches that equilibrium. We've got gravity. We've got a star here. We've got gravity pulling it down. Gravity wants to collapse it all down in there. We've got energy now starting to be produced at the center, pushing it back out. As we continue on, as it collapses smaller and smaller, more and more energy is being produced. And eventually, at some point, the energy being produced will exactly balance the gravitational force pulling it down, and it will stop contracting. There'll be enough energy to hold up that contraction for a while. As long as, there's, as long as it's got fuel. If it runs out of gas in the, in the center, we're out of luck, right? No more energy, no more energy source. It's going to stop producing energy. You wipe out all this, what's going to happen? It's going to start collapsing again, right? We've gotten rid of all the energy source. Now, that doesn't, that's where the sun is heading. But you've got 5 billion years to get there. It's a long time it takes to use up all that energy. But once you use it up, you're now out of balance again. You've got no energy source. And the star will begin to collapse again. And that's really the subject of chapter 12 that we'll come to. We'll get started on in a little bit here. Now looking at a couple images, just to show, going to show you a few images on these next few slides. Um, we have a couple shown here. We actually get jets from some of these materials as these stars are forming. So a star collapses down in here. There's a disk of material around it. And you get jets that come out perpendicular to that disk. Here's another one where you see uh, the star is actually buried in here at the center, barely being able to be seen. But it's throwing out jets of material. The jets of material are actually much brighter than the star itself. So the star is actually kind of hidden deep down, probably about in there. And the jets of material here 
are really what we can what we can see. So as the stars are condensing, some of the material gets thrown back out into that interstellar cloud to help form new stars. But we see jets, we also will see jets when we get to galaxies. We'll see jets when we get to uh, the deaths of stars. We'll see some of these things come back again and again. So this is the first time we've seen jets of material and it's material being thrown away from these stars at incredibly high speeds and being strewn out into space. It glows out here as these jets come out. They smash into more material and they heat it up. So that's why this glows as this jet that is shoved out here glows as it heats up all this material. Same thing on this side, another jet, one going upward, one going downward, smashes into this and excites that part of the gas and causes it to glow. Here's a couple of protostars we can see in Orion. Uh, one in the infrared. Look in the infrared light here we can see one. Darker area around it, perhaps a dust cloud. This one is actually invisible light. Not a very good image, right? We're not getting a lot of visible light when you're looking through a lot of these. So they're very difficult to see. Very hard to see. So you get some there, but they're buried in these dust clouds. And in some cases where there's where the object is starting to get bright enough, working on breaking its way out of its cloud, we can start to get a little bit of light from it. And with a nice long exposure, we can actually start to pick up some details and actually see some of these protostars that are even in the visible part of the spectrum. Now what happens if it's not the mass of the star, of the sun? I did the mass of the sun, now we've got to do it all again for the other ones, right? Not in this case. In this case, they really don't change a whole lot. It really doesn't matter whether the star is um, the mass of the sun, that's the pattern we just looked at, kind of drops down and hooks over. Well, if it's a third the mass of the sun, it does the same thing. If it's three times the mass of the sun, the pattern's the same. They're shifted a little bit. Yeah, this one's got a little bit more mass. It's going to end up further up here on the main sequence. This one's got a little bit less. It's not going to end up as far. But they're going to, the general pattern, what's happening is almost exactly the same regardless of what type of star, how massive the star is. So there's not a big variation in terms of the type of stars when they're forming. Quite different when they reach the end of their life. When a star like the sun reaches the end of its life, it follows one pattern that we'll look at. A star like this will do something else. A star way up here will do something completely different. So big difference at the end of the life, but really in terms of looking at other stars, the process that I just walked you through, in terms of the collapse and the protostar and the fragmentation and all of that and beginning to produce energy is the same regardless of the mass of the star. The same thing happens. The only thing that's different is it does have more mass so it's going to follow a shifted track that it might end up with three solar masses or five solar masses or ten solar masses. So they're going to end up at a different place here. Just imagine shifting this a little bit here or shifting it a little bit here. The general pattern, everything that's happening is pretty much the same. There's very little changes in this portion of the life of a star depending on the mass. When we get to the much more massive stars, it's quite, quite different. Alrighty. Now there are some stars, are some cases where we don't get enough mass. Remember we have to get that up to a temperature of 15, uh, 10 million degrees in order to form, in order to have nuclear fusion begin. There are cases where you just don't get enough matter condensing in that fragment. There's a little bit too little mass. 
and it's not enough to get it up to that 15 million degrees. If you don't have that, you get a failed star, or what we call a brown dwarf star. So not really a star in the sense because it's not forming uh, energy through nuclear reactions, but bigger, much bigger than a planet. So much bigger in terms of mass than a planet, but not enough mass to actually form nuclear reactions. And we see these. These have been detected. Uh, this is a picture of them in the infrared. You can actually see a number of them. They actually form quite a bit. A whole bunch of them scattered in here. We can look at them close to other stars. They could actually orbit around another star, sort of like a very big, massive planet. And you can see that here in the visible portion of the spectrum. As we look at these, you can find this little object and you can watch and actually be able to see it orbiting around. And that's what we call a brown dwarf star, or a star that is not quite big enough to have formed a, to undergone nuclear reactions. Now that would have, let me go back here one, brown dwarf stars would be, you can imagine, would be right down, way down off the edge here. They'd be even cooler than this and even fainter. So you imagine taking the main sequence down and extending it downwards, those brown dwarf stars are going to be way, way down here, much, much cooler temperatures and much, much fainter than even the smallest of the main sequence stars. So they're ones that just didn't quite, didn't quite make it. There wasn't quite enough matter there. If they'd been twice as big or five times as big, they'd have been one of the littler main sequence stars and would have had enough energy to undergo nuclear reactions. They didn't quite make that cut. All right, star clusters. Last section of this chapter. The, the big cloud that we started with, remember it fragments, so it doesn't really form one giant star. It doesn't form one star. This will actually fragment and actually end up forming tens or hundreds or thousands of stars. And the nice thing about them when they form in a star cluster is that all those stars are the same age. They all formed at pretty much the same time. They're all made of the same stuff. They came out of the same cloud. And they're a good way to help us study stellar evolution. How do stars change over time? Because the only thing that's different about them is how much matter went into forming those stars. Nothing else is really any different. They're going to be how much matter is there, how much matter formed those stars. Might be five times the mass of the sun, might be one times the mass of the sun. And you can compare those two, but you can compare directly because they formed at the same time and they formed out of the same material. So some of the other variables have been removed. So if we look here, this is a star cluster, a very young star cluster called the Pleiades. And if we plot out the stars in it, the HR diagram here on the right hand side, we find that there's most of the stars on the main sequence and the ones very up to the top here are just starting to move out and just starting to move their way towards the red giant branch. So that's telling us it's a very young cluster. And we can use a diagram like this of a star cluster to really tell us something about the ages and about the future of the cluster, how those stars are moving. Uh, the Pleiades is an example of what we call an open star cluster. An open cluster means that it's open. It's, gonna stay, it's there right now. But those stars are all moving around. And there's not enough mass together to hold them together. So they're visible early on. But over time, the, the stars will gradually dissipate out into space. They're all moving randomly in different directions. Some might come close to each other for a while. Others are slowly dissipating out into space. And if you could come back in tens of millions of years, 100 million years, the cluster would be much more spread out and you wouldn't begin to see it as a cluster anymore. 
So perhaps the sun was part of a cluster like this, you know, billions of years ago, and it slowly wandered off into space by itself, far away from any of the other stars that it might have been associated with a long time ago. Now another type of cluster is a globular cluster. A globular cluster, big glob, big glob of stars getting its name. What you don't see in a globular cluster is here's the main sequence, but the main sequence stops. There aren't any stars up here on the main sequence as there were in the younger cluster. We see lots of red giant stars, which we didn't see in the uh, other cluster region. Other cluster diagram. So it's telling us something else about this. The globular clusters do have enough mass. They're gravitationally bound together. They can be 10 billion years old. So the life of the age of the sun. So that means if one of these formed 10 billion years ago, that stars like the sun would be in the process of moving off the main sequence, of leaving the main sequence. Their temperature and luminosity would be changing. So something like this, we're actually beginning to see the end states. And this is what we're going to look at when we look at in the next chapter, the path that the sun will take. We'll see something very similar to this. It'll move off the main sequence, move up towards the red giant region, back down and back up again. It'll kind of zigzag back up and forth a few times before eventually ending up way down here as a white dwarf star. So a globular cluster, another type of star cluster seeing lots and lots of red giants. Here is a star cluster forming. Um, looking at the Orion Nebula, that's visually on the left hand side and infrared on the right hand side. Can you see the, cl see the cluster there? See all the stars beginning to form. Again, Time takes time to form, but if we can come back in hundreds of thousands of years, these stars, more stars are forming, they'll slowly be pushing this material out, and eventually this star will look, this cluster will look more like this in the visible part of the spectrum. Those stars will have broken out of their cocoons from which they formed, and will then be able to see them as a cluster of stars. We'll have a small open cluster of stars where the Orion Nebula is right now. So that's an example within Orion. And then those stars, those stars that form, especially the very earliest ones that form that are the most massive, they can really affect the star cluster. So they can actually you know, get rid of stop star formation as it starts. They're very intense. They can explode in supernovae explosions, but they have intense solar winds, stellar winds, and can push material away and sort of stop the star formation even before it occurs. This is an example of a simulation of a cluster similar to this, that you'd have material, uh, darker material out here, where stars have already formed. We've got a small cluster of stars that have formed here, the bright ones, perhaps a brown dwarf that's formed. Um, some stars with disks, some stars that get ejected out of the area. And I'm going to show you actually the simulation. I'm going to actually show you the whole simulation of this in just a minute once I go through the. I'm going to go through the summary, which is the next couple of pages. Then I'm going to go back and actually show you the, uh, the simulation that will actually run this through hundreds of thousands of years of stellar evolution in just a few, in just a few minutes. So that's just what you'll see. You can still be able to see that there are different clusters. You'll actually see how we can form a cluster of stars theoretically in a very short period of time. So finishing up chapter 11. It, chapter 11, we have the interstellar medium. That's the subject of the chapter. We have the gas and the dust. Gas is gas particles, individual particles, or very small molecules. Dust are bigger clumps, 
That's what blocks out the light. Um, emission nebulae, hot glowing uh, gas that are associated with large stars. Large hot stars form, emit a lot of ultraviolet radiation, and cause the emission nebula to glow. The dark clouds are extremely, co extremely cold, 10 degrees. 10 degrees, 10 degrees, meaning not 10 degrees, you know, cold winter time. 10 degrees above absolute zero. 10 degrees above as cold as you can possibly get. And that is likely where the stars are in the process of forming. That's where the stars begin to form. We can't look at them visibly. They're not hot enough to emit any visible light. But if we look at that 21 centimeter, that flip of the hydrogen atom, right? Spins going the same direction, flip them, one spin goes in the opposite direction that emits one photon with a wavelength of 21 centimeters. With that happening millions and millions of times every second within these clouds, there's a lot of 21 centimeter radiation coming and they can track out where that hydrogen is. Again, you're not going to see it visibly, but you can see it with radio because it's a much lower energy and we can see the much cooler temperatures that way. And then we spent the rest of the chapter kind of was going through the Star formation, how do we form the stars, fragment the, fragment the stars, uh, collapse the dust clouds, starts to collapse, it fragments, breaks into different pieces, and each of those will eventually become a protostar, which will become a star, or if it's not massive enough, it'll become one of those brown dwarfs, which is not quite enough mass to actually undergo nuclear fusion on its own. And then finally, again, they collapse down, eventually will form a hot enough temperature um, that they'll begin nuclear fusion. So you get to a 10 million degree temperature in the core and nuclear, once the core is that hot, we can actually have fusion begin. It really officially becomes a star. These are things that we can see. So again, we cannot watch the process. We can't watch a star. We can't watch this gas cloud and sit there and watch it. Not, li not literally, we can do it theoretically, but we cannot watch it collapse and go through all these stages. But we can see each bit of this. So we can see each bit, we can see what it looks like, what is a, where is the dark gas cloud. Here are examples of fragmenting clouds, here are examples of protostars, here are examples of stars working their way towards the main sequence, here are main sequence stars. In the next chapter we'll look at the other stage as they come out. We can see all those different stages helping us with our theories of how these, uh, these stars form. The pattern is the same really, independent of the mass. doesn't matter whether it's a high mass or a low mass star. The only thing ma that matters is that that tells you is where it's going to end up on the main sequence. High mass stars ending up in the upper left, low mass stars in the lower right. So mass tells you where you're going to fall on the main sequence, but not necessarily tell you anything about how you get there. The pattern and the process of this collapse is pretty much the same regardless of the mass of the star. And then finally the cloud will form many, many stars, not just a single star, but it'll form actually a star cluster. That's what we looked at. That's, when the, that's what the process in the process of happening in Orion right now. Come back in 100,000 years. Instead of where Orion's uh, sword is, we'll actually have a small cluster, a small open cluster of stars. So let me get this video, that's the end of that. Let me get this video I wanted to show you first. This is that same thing we were looking at. This is going to turn into that same picture we were seeing. But this is at time zero. The, what's shown on here before I start this playing is actually the densities. So when you go way over here, the darker colors is zero density. There's no material. Then up into the reds. And then as you get more and more density, it'll get yellow and white. So you'll see more and more material 
as it gets to these hotter, uh, denser areas. You see that right now we're all way down into here. So none of it is very dense right now. But this is that gas cloud. This is what's going to happen. Eventually this will begin to, eventually something would cause this to collapse. What it is is not, is not given. But once it does start to collapse, what will happen to it? And that's what we're going to look at here. So let me let this run through. So as it begins to collapse, there it goes. Jump there for a second. Let me go back again. That was too big of a jump. There we go. That looks better. So you can see it start to collapse and fragment. We're getting all these different pieces. Not just four or eight, but we're getting many, you're getting hundreds. You're going to get hundreds of them. And various areas, you see where the collapsing is getting denser. We're getting up to some that are actually pushing into the whiter portion of this, very dense. Now we just, now that we did that, we just changed the scale completely. So the scale changed completely. What was white is now in this orangish scale. And it continues to collapse. And now we're just sort of spinning it. And again, changing that density, we're going to look in at one of these little areas where stars are going to be in the process of forming. And you'll see a few stars start to come there, zipping around. The gravity as they interact spins them around. Some of them could get flung out altogether. There go a couple uh, gone. Some of them will stay closer into, a cluster, into the cluster of stars. And you see as it's sort of whipping around here. Now we're going through, we've gone through 200,000 years since we started this. So this isn't something, again, that's why I say you can't sit there and watch it. The time up in the upper left, we're at 240,000 years since the simulation started. And then we're going to zoom in and look at this one again, this one section here. Again, you've got a nice cluster with a disk there. And you have some of these would be brown dwarfs. You, could, you can't tell from looking at this, but some would have too little mass uh, to actually be stars. But you see as you're starting to form more and more stars as these uh, areas begin to collapse. And then if we zoom out a little bit, we actually get a cluster of stars. So theoretically, we can actually form a cluster of stars that way. Now again, we can't watch that. I didn't even remember where it ended up, how long that took. I should have watched at the very end, but what was it about? Oops. 266,000. There's our star cluster. 266,000 years. So. Long time for us, but remember the sun, how many times would the sun have been able to see 266,000 years in 5 billion? Boy, a heck of a lot of times. So this has gone on a lot of times since the sun originally formed. So, question, question? No, no? All right. <laughs>